Good morning, everybody. Even if you didn't grow up in the 1960s, I have to imagine that most of you are still familiar with the classic TV show, Leave it to Beaver. Yeah, Leave it to Beaver ran in the, in the late 50s and the early 60s, and it, it traced the adventures of the Cleaver family, mostly the boys, as they uh, found themselves in a variety of pickles at school and in their neighborhood and around, uh, around their home. But, but what's interesting about the Cleavers is that even more than the show itself, this family became something of the iconic, prototypical, wholesome American family. I mean, just, just look at them. Those of you who've seen the show know that Mrs. Cleaver would often flutter around the kitchen in a beautiful dress and, and high heels even and a, a beautiful pearl necklace. I asked my wife to do that once. <laughs> and I think we ate McDonald's that night. But in some ways, the Cleavers kind of remain, even to this day, an image of the perfect little family, right? Everybody getting along, no major issues, certainly uh, no major tragedy or pain. With that, I, I want you to repeat these words after me. Are you ready? My family is not like that. <laughs> and, and we know that's true. No family is like that. And yet, yet... The temptation that we often feel in this life, particularly as we are facing pain and trials, is to dress ourselves up like the cleavers. Right? Even this morning, we, we put on our Sunday best, we put on our Sunday makeup, we walk around, we shake hands, we smile, we kiss babies, everything's fine. Wondering at the same time if anyone will notice that inside we are experiencing deep pain and sorrow. I wonder if you'd help me out one more time by standing up a bit. I won't do this to you all morning, I promise, but just stand, stand up if you would. And, and I want you to stop looking at me for a minute, and I want you to look around the congregation, at the families of our church, maybe even lock eyes with somebody across the room. And, and as you do that, I want you to consider that it is quite certain that someone in the room today is battling a deep physical or mental illness. Keep looking across the room. I, I want you to because I want you to know that it's quite certain that someone today has a parent who is dying of cancer who will probably die any day. I want you to look around the room and consider the fact that someone's marriage in this room is, is very likely just hanging by the smallest thread. Is it them? Is it you? You can be seated. As we settle in to the heaviness of this, this reality, the question before us this morning is simple. How should we, particularly as Christians, respond when we are facing that type of pain? We know one of the temptations, right, is to become the cleavers. We said it earlier, just to put on the, the happy face, mask the pain, avoid transparency, and by all means, get out of here as quickly as possible before anybody can notice. 
what's really going on. But is there another way? Is there a better way? With that, I want to invite you to meet me in your Bibles uh, in Psalm 137. Psalm 137, uh, you'll find it on page 521 of your pew Bibles. If you didn't bring a Bible, please grab one, turn to 521, and uh, take that Bible home with you if you don't own one. We'd love to give you that gift. Those of you that have been around for any number of weeks, you know we've been working our way through the book of Romans. We take a couple of weeks off from Romans and, and pad that break with the Psalms, and today we're wading into the deep, dark waters of Psalm 137. I'll read through it first, and then we'll go back around and, and unpack it together, okay? Psalm 137 and verse 1. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I don't remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem. How they said, lay it bare. Lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. This is God's word. And I say that with great intentionality because this is one of those passages of scripture that really challenges our theology of the word, really challenges our conviction that all scripture really is breathed out by God and, and profitable. And yet if, I, if we hang in there together, I think that, that you will find this passage to be refreshingly vulnerable and surprisingly encouraging. So let me just set the, the simple roadmap as we work through this really complicated passage. As we'll look at, at three primary sections. Uh, the first being lamenting our pain. The second, remembering our commitment. And the third, crying out for justice. Again, remembering our pain, or excuse me, lamenting our pain, remembering our commitment, and then, then crying out for justice. The first in verses 1 to 4, lamenting our pain. Let's, let's look again. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. It's helpful for us to, to pause here for just a minute and shape the context and the circumstances that are surrounding this outcry of pain that the psalmist gives us. The author uh, is likely one of the Jews who would have been returning from the Babylonian exile. And he, he remembers how he was literally brought to a posture of, of mourning and lament because of a memory. The destruction of Jerusalem and the displacement of God's people. It's like an old wound was just ripped wide open. 
Of course, the, the fall of Jerusalem wasn't just like a stubbed toe in the life of the people of God. It, it was a, a violent death blow to them. We read about it in places like 2 Kings 25 where Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. They captured the king. They slaughtered his sons before his eyes. They burned the house of the Lord and all the houses of Jerusalem. Of course, history goes on to tell us that the Babylonians laid total waste to God's people. I mean, they, they went far beyond what was necessary as the instruments of God's judgment. They pillaged and slaughtered. They abused and they murdered. It's not only the severity of the destruction that is causing the psalmist to lament, it's, it's also the representation of the destruction. And, and this is really important to understanding the essence of this passage. You see, Jerusalem was the city of God. It was the, the representation of God's promises, the evidence of his saving power, the place where his very presence dwelt. You see, Jerusalem essentially was the culmination of all of God's covenant blessings. And now, all of that was a pile of dust and rubble. The lament continues in verse 2. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. This was an instrument of praise that was set aside. Verse 3, for there are captors required of us songs, our tormentors, mirth or joy, as some translations say, saying, sing to us one of the songs of Zion. The response, how shall we sing? How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? So after plunging the knife into the heart of God's people, Babylon twists that same knife, and the captors with biting sarcasm say, hey, losers, how about you drum up one of the, the songs of Zion, maybe one that talks about the might and power of your God. How about, uh, what's the one, is it Psalm 46 that, that says there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God? God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Sing us that one. This, of course, was bullying at the highest level. And the response would not be joy or music, but weeping and sadness. Because, of course, there was just too much pain. There was torment. Wonder if you've ever been tormented by something. Haunted by, by a deep pain that maybe, maybe only you know about. What do you do with that? How do you process through that, that kind of hurt? I mean, you certainly can't deal with it here at church, right? I mean, this is a room full of cleavers. We, we live in Canfield after all. Let me just let the cat out of the bag for you. We are all a hot, steaming mess. Every one of us. Even though we've grown quite skilled at burying our pain, putting on a happy face, keeping people at, at arm's length because if we get too close, they might just see how screwed up we actually are. 
Listen, whether it's the pain of abuse or addiction, whether it's financial or relational distress, whether it's because of your own choices or the sinful choices of others upon you, let me just say it's okay to not be okay. Okay? Listen, we, we worship a God who is well acquainted with pain. Did, did, you know that, did you know that the prophet Isaiah says of Jesus Christ that he was despised and rejected by men? A man of sorrows, a man acquainted with grief? This is unbelievable, but that the God to whom we cry actually understands our pain. He's not aloof or detached. He, he knows our pain because in the person of Jesus Christ, of course, he experienced our pain. So maybe, just maybe, today is the day when a few of us peel back a layer of facade and rediscover the place and power of biblical lament. And one of the things I hope you take away from this passage is permission to lament before God. Permission to exercise a kind of raw and honest language that's what lament is, really. It's, it's the vocabulary of the suffering. I love the way that Old Testament professor Andrew Schmutzer says it. He says that lament restores the suffering person from mutism. I'll say it again. Lament restores the suffering person from mutism. So if you, if you feel like the pain you are experiencing has absolutely choked away your voice, that you have no voice. Hear God's word this morning that through lament, you have been given a voice before God. He is near and he's listening. What's more is that Psalm 137 doesn't just stop at lament. It, it actually continues on the tone actually and we'll look at it again seems to switch gears around verse 5 and it and advances from lamenting pain to remembering commitment remembering commitment let's look at it verses 5 and 6 he says if I forget you O Jerusalem let my right hand forget its skill let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you if if I don't set Jerusalem above my highest joy. So what we have here is essentially a double vow with a double curse. And, and this double vow leans very heavily on the language of forgetting and remembering. Forgetting and remembering. Forgetting and remembering. So amidst all of the painful memories of the past, the psalmist now expresses his desire to never forget Jerusalem. And just like the opening verses, it's again important for us to think beyond just bricks and mortar, beyond the streets and shops of the city, because this commitment to remember Jerusalem is really a commitment to remember the Lord himself. Maybe he was thinking about the rebellion of the people that landed them in Babylon in the first place. Maybe he was thinking about the ways in which they at times took God's blessing for granted. Whatever was on his mind, what we do know is that this raw, vulnerable conversation with God continues and lament gives way to unashamed commitments, to always remember the Lord, to, to set him above 
one's highest joys. As you probably know, this past week was Valentine's Day, a day that's both easy to remember and forget, I suppose. Uh, And to be honest, Sarah and I really didn't do anything too romantic uh, this week. No, you were dying to hear that. But but I did attempt to, to pick out a card, only to find myself at wit's end by all the superficial, superfluous kind of nonsense and glitter in the card aisle. I actually bought a few to share with you this morning. Listen to this. Uh, This one says, I didn't believe in the little naked guy with the bow and arrows, but then you came along, and he got me right in the heart. (laughs) Terrible. This next one, you, I don't know if you, you can't really see it, but it's a picture of, of an umbrella, and there are raindrops coming down, and there are little hearts at the bottom of the raindrops, and it says, 100% chance of love. <laughs> On the inside, it says, expect lots of love to be scattered throughout your day. You deserve it. Happy Valentine's Day. Four ninety nine. But this this last one might be the worst of all. It says, I believe in love. I believe that when two people give each other everything there is to give, there's nothing they can't do, nowhere they can't go, no dream they can't make happen. I believe in us. And as much as I love every moment now, I can't wait to see our every dream come true. (laughs) I think we can do better than superficial sentiment as it relates to remembering the people that we love and as it relates to remembering the Lord. You know, it's, it's the reason that we ministers ask brides and grooms on their wedding day to affirm their joy and their love through statements of commitment. Will you commit yourself this day to love so-and-so, listen, regardless of circumstances? in sickness and in health, in trial or in triumph, in pain or in power. You caught the language. This this is so helpful when we are facing deep difficulty in this life, not just with our spouse. Lament takes us somewhere. It, It takes us to the place of remembering our need for God driving us to dependence upon him, renewing our commitments to him. I mean, more often than not, in the Psalms, and and scholars say as much as a third of the Psalter is filled with lament of some kind, and the Psalms are filled with lament, but more often than not, lament is very often followed by an expression of trust in the Lord. It's what we have here in Psalm 137. And so, think about what this means. This means when you lose another pregnancy... When your child or grandchild continues to demonstrate behavioral or developmental challenges that you just can't get your head around, when a person that you love turns their back on you, you have been given a deep well of resources by the fusion of lament and remembering your commitment. Both are are biblical expressions of living in relationship with God. I mean, I think about the Lord Jesus Christ and his time in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Jesus said to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. He fell on his face and prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Luke, the physician, records that Jesus being in agony when he prayed more earnestly, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is is agony. Jesus crying out to God and, and yet following his agony, he remembers his mission and his commitment to God the Father's plan. You know these words. He says, nevertheless... Not my will, but yours be done. This is not only inspiring, this is empowering for the Christian life. So to recap to this point, when when facing our pain, we we lament. We lament that pain. We cry out to God. We, We also remember the Lord and remember our commitments and it's it's in that fusion of lament and remembering that we really start to see the distilled essence of this passage in fact we might say it this way when faced with pain that you'd rather forget remember the God of justice when you are facing pain that you would soon Love to forget. Remember God and the God of justice. And it's, it's in that, that particular attribute of God, his justice, that we catch the most vivid expressions of Psalm 137. We have to look at it again. Verses 7 to 9. He says, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Namely, blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. What do we make of that? This is, without question, the most difficult part of this psalm. Uh, So let me just offer a few nuances that that might help us navigate through this very dense fog of of this language. First, I I think it's important that we not try to blunt the edge of the psalmist's extreme language. Um, This is true of the entire psalm, but but especially here, that, that we must take it for what it is, a raw, unfiltered, unedited cry for justice. Babylon had laid waste to the city and the people of God. They abused and murdered and killed. An event that the psalmist back in verse 1 remembers, leading him to remember the Lord. And now, he's asking the Lord to remember something. His justice. So that's the first nuance. The second is that we need to appreciate the nuance of biblical literature, specifically uh, the language of biblical poetry. And poetry, of course, is, is truth expressed in vibrant, often figurative language. And the language of biblical poetry is very unique in its ability to evoke heavy, unfiltered emotion. Derek Kidner, who's a leading Old Testament scholar, notes that in this instance, horror may be piled on horror 
more to express the speaker's sense of outrage than to spell out the precise penalties that he literally intends. Don Carson very succinctly calls this type of language the rhetoric of outrage. In other words, it's supposed to make us sit up and say, man, that is intense. Because, of course, evil is. Sin is. Injustice is intense. And and frankly, we as Christians very often do a disservice to those who are truly suffering by muting or muzzling them because it offends our sensitive ears and our, our modern sensibilities. A third important nuance is understanding that this emotionally charged appeal to God's justice are not isolated in the Old Testament. For example, Revelation 6 and later in Revelation actually picking up on the language of Psalm 137 looking to the future Babylon, the enemies of God. Revelation 6 says, I saw under the altar the soul of those who had been slain for the word of God. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge? and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. But the final nuance, and perhaps the most important, is to clearly differentiate between personal retribution and divine justice. A hugely important nuance. We we need to be clear here. The psalmist, and subsequently the Christian, are not to be about the business of personal retribution. This is not about taking matters into one's own hands. Just the opposite, in fact. It's it's entrusting the enactment of justice to the one who is truly just. Paul sums it up well in Romans 12. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God where it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So when faced with pain, we'd rather forget. We really do well to remember the God of justice. And this this final section uh, carries some really practical implications. I'll mention just a couple. One is that the justice of God gives us a baseline, a clear baseline for objective morality, right? So in a world where what's right for you is right for you and what's right for me is right for me, we are given from this psalm the ability to clearly identify and call out evil. And and even more, we're given a mechanism by which we can cry out to God for justice against that evil. And so that that means when we turn on the news and see the tragedy that has happened in Parkland, Florida with another school shooting, we can identify that for what it really is. It's terrible. It's evil. We can can think of those parents and, and weep for them. We can beseech God for his justice. How long, O sovereign Lord, until you make all of this right? 
until you make every crooked way straight. How long, O Lord? Another practical implication to the justice of God is the way that it it really frees us to respond to injustice. Here's what I mean, because when injustice arises, there, I think there are a couple of temptations that happen at opposite ends of a spectrum. On one end, uh, the response to injustice can cause us to kind of sink deeply and recoil within ourselves and just be utterly paralyzed. Lord, it's too much. I don't know what to do. How could I possibly? I, I just, and so we sink and we sink and we sink. Another temptation on the opposite end of the spectrum is what we talked about earlier. It's taking matters into our own hands. It's, it's executing personal retribution. I'm going to do something about this. The justice of God frees us from both. It frees us from being both paralyzed and emboldened, right? Because we can, we can clearly identify evil. We can work for good while also knowing that, that God himself, in the end, will bring about justice. We can rest in the truth of, of Romans 12, that God will one day right every wrong and he will vindicate his own holiness. And facing pain that we would rather forget, we must remember the God of justice. Just a couple of weeks ago, a man named Larry Nasser was sentenced to up to 175 years in prison. You may have read this story. Uh, Nasser is the former USA gymnastics doctor who assaulted and abused dozens and dozens of young girls under the guise of medical treatment. A terrible evil. One of the, the most remarkable testimonies coming out of this case is that of a young lady named Rachel Denhollander. Her testimony went viral on the internet and for good reason. She, she spoke at the sentencing courageously, truthfully, and she shared the gospel with the man who caused her so much pain. Now you can imagine all the reactions all across the country, the news media, the internet. But one of the most interesting reactions, I think, came from, from Rachel herself. Listen to what she said in an interview with Christianity Today after the sentencing. She says, I found it interesting that every single Christian publication that has mentioned my statement is only ever focused on the aspect of forgiveness. Very few, if any, have recognized what else came with that statement which was a swift and intentional pursuit of God's justice. Both are biblical concepts, and we do not do well when we focus on only one of them. You know, I think Rachel is absolutely spot on. Why? The reason is because when we miss the severity of God's justice... We also miss the sweetness of the gospel. Think about it. I mean, think, think back to the vows and the curses at verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 137, right? The, the psalmist brings a curse upon himself if, if he forgets the Lord. He then goes on to petition God for certain judgments against his enemies. The problem, of course, for all of us is that we are all, in one sense or another, subject to the curse of Psalm 137. We all forget the Lord. 
We all fall short in our commitment and allegiance to him. We are all, as Romans 5 describes us, guilty as enemies of God. That is how the severity of God's justice informs the sweetness of the gospel because in the gospel, Jesus Christ on the cross takes the curse and the judgment of Psalm 137 upon himself. He bears the full weight of God's judgment for sin. We read earlier from Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. The prophet goes on to say that that Jesus was crushed for our iniquities and, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And listen, with his wounds, we are healed. That is why we remember the God of justice when facing our pain because we find healing in the atoning work of Jesus. The son of God who took the curse of God's enemies so that God's enemies might become his sons and daughters. Because at the cross, we not only find forgiveness, and oh, do we find forgiveness, we also find justice and healing. When faced with pain, we'd rather forget, we must remember the God of justice. As we process through a psalm and a passage of scripture like this, I have to guess that uh, there are a lot of us here who are wrestling with some heavy, dark stuff physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual, and just want to let you know that uh, in a moment as we sing our closing song and receive our benediction that several of our leaders will be here. Um, If you need to lament, if you need to have a good cry, we would be honored to stand with you. I also just want to quickly speak to those who might be here, maybe for the first time are feeling the full heaviness of the justice of God. Listen, the good news this morning is that reprieve from that weight is available today. And I would encourage you to to cry out to God, not only out of your distress and personal pain, but to cry out to him to be delivered from judgment. To recognize the Lord Jesus Christ and that his sacrifice satisfies the wrath of God because it was a perfect sacrifice. He lived the life that we should have lived Die the death that we should die. And yet, in place of death and judgment, the Lord Jesus Christ offers us peace and forgiveness if we would put our faith in him and turn to him. There's a lot of pain out there. There's a lot of pain in here. And in here. So when we are faced with that pain that we would rather forget, may we all together today remember the God of justice. With that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us face to face with issues that we probably not approach on our own. They're too scary. So we thank you for the way in which your word cuts us deep, it challenges our presuppositions, it stretches us in the same way that it, that it can be crushing, it also lifts us because we see in the scriptures a God who is not indifferent to pain or injustice, but one who acts on behalf of the broken and the hurting.
one who simultaneously offers love and deals with wickedness in the cross of Jesus Christ. I pray that you will, among us, remove walls and barriers, that we would grow as a community in transparency, our willingness to bear one another's burdens, to become better listeners, and ultimately to continue entrusting ourselves to you, the one who judges justly. And for that, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.